Uh, we are now in the second week of our uh, series that we're calling In Christ, and this is a, uh, a, an exploration of what it means to be in Christ. Let me give you a little bit of background. On Easter Sunday, we started a, an eight-week series called Remade that was really focused on what is sort of the result of being made new in Christ. And uh, Paul says that those who are in Christ are made into a new creation. And so we spent eight weeks discovering that. Uh, What we want to do now in these four weeks, and this is the second week, is we want to look a little more of the theological base of what does it mean to be in Christ, who is Christ, that that we are made new in him. Uh, We want to discover all kinds of of these things, and so uh, we'll just uh, move right along. But last week, let me give you a quick recap. Uh, we, We learned that being in Christ means that we are making him the center of our faith. We talked about two mistakes that we tend to make with our faith. The first is we, we, we tend to put a little too much faith in ourselves. And that is to say that, that a lot of times we, we try to have faith in our own ability to conjure up faith. That in difficult circumstances, we often say to ourselves, if I could just have enough faith. And in those moments where our faith truly lies is in our ability to have faith. And it is, that is a faith that is misplaced. Uh, We also talked about the second mistake, which is we often tend to have faith in the faith of others. Uh, That is to say, and and I think that there's an appropriate time in life when when we are discouraged, when we're downtrodden, when when life seems to be chaotic, uh, when we just feel like we can't have enough Christ-centered faith of our own, I think it is biblical and scriptural for the community of God to come around, around that person and lift them up by their faith. You'll remember in scripture that a, a, a paralytic is healed by the faith of his friends. So what I was talking about last week is when we use the other people's faith fatalities as a barrier to our own faith. I wanted to clarify that a little bit because I, I came away from last week feeling like that wasn't clear. That, that when we come to the point of making a faith decision in Christ, we will oftentimes allow the expression of faith that other people have to be a barrier. In other words, they're still living like that. Faith must not be worth it. Therefore, I won't have any faith. And, and we're placing our faith sort of in the inability of others to have faith. Does that make sense? Is that clarified a little bit? That may, be, that may have muddied the waters even more, but uh, I, I think I'm just going to leave it right there. Uh, so, so faith, we, we, we make the mistake of placing our faith in the ability that other people have to have faith. And if they display that they don't have the ability to faith, then that crashes our own. And we can never keep, we can never put other people as the focus of our faith. The point of last week was our faith must be firmly centered in Christ. In other words, what this first thing that it means to be in Christ is to make sure that our faith is held solidly in the faithfulness of God or in the God who is faithful. Okay, that's where we were last week. Today, I want to talk to you about having fullness in Christ. I want to talk to you about having fullness in Christ. Christ. And I want to remember this is a study through Colossians. So today we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. And I'm going to be reading verses 8 through 15. So Colossians chapter 2, if you brought your Bible today, you can follow along. Uh, It is right there in the Bible app for you if you're following along in the live section. Uh, We'll have it up on the screens. And then somewhere in your zip code or neighborhood uh, underneath the chairs, there should be a few Bibles as well if you want to follow along. But let me read it and uh, you all follow along with me. This is Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. 
through 15. It says this. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now this is a re Paul is re-emphasizing what he talked about in chapter 1 and what we talked about last week. That the reason our faith can be centered in Christ is that Christ is, Jesus is not God's plan B. It wasn't like Adam and Eve sinned and then God thought, oh, what should I do? I guess I'll create Christ who will die for their sins. Jesus is the very word of God made flesh All the fullness of God's deity is in him. Uh, Hebrews says that he is the exact representation of God himself. What Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 is that Jesus is the mere image. He makes the invisible God visible. So if you want to see God, look at Jesus. Paul is reemphasizing that here in verse 9. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands, but your sinful nature was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. And having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. You, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away and nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them and triumphing over them by the cross. Now, One of the main themes of what Paul is saying is this idea of circumcision. This seems to be central to understanding this passage is this idea of circumcision, circumcision by Christ, and then again in our sinful nature and the uncircumcision of our heart. So let's talk about what in the world is circumcision and what does it mean. Now, in the Old Testament, circumcision was a mark or a sign of belonging to God's covenant people, to the nation of Israel, also known as the Hebrews. Okay, So the nation of Israel, the Hebrews, the people of God, the nation of God, circumcision was a sign on the male body of, um, of, a, of belonging to not only this nation state, but more than that, belonging to this nation which belongs to God, that is, is God's covenant people. And so any male that was not circumcised was, was referred to as cut off from his people and was regarded as a covenant breaker. If you weren't circumcised, you have broken the very covenant of God uh, that, that God has made with this nation of Israel. So it was a very big deal in the Old Testament as this sign and as this mark. And it eventually became the source of not only national pride, but religious pride as well. <coughs> In that it marked them as a covenant people of God. So it began to be, it was such a big deal that they swelled up with pride. And as a marker, I belong to the people of God, the nation of God. And they began to refer to anyone that was not an Israelite, anyone that did not belong to the nation of Israel, or in other words, a Gentile. They began to refer to Gentiles and just call them the uncircumcision. 
In other words, it became not only the mark of being in the crowd, it also became the absence of that mark was also the mark of being out of the crowd. It was this very, very, not only tangible and physical, but, but source of pride in belonging or on the other side, not belonging. Uh, so it was a big, big deal. Now, what happens then as Jesus enters the scene and he says the forgiveness is now for anyone that would come to me and repent and, and, and believe, then, then the forgiveness of sins is very real. The kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus comes on the scene with this brand new message. There began to be a debate for new Christians. And the question was, are the Gentiles who are, have now come to Christ, is it required that they be circumcised? That's what Paul is addressing in this particular passage and all other passages all over, all over the New Testament. This was a big debate. Do Gentile Christians, Gentiles, having placed their faith in Christ, do they also need to be circumcised in order to be in the club? You're either in or you're out. You're either circumcised or you're not circumcised. Circumcised, the uncircumcised. Now, Gentiles, do we also have to obey this? And the strong message that was coming... Uh, all over Colossae, all over Galatia, was this idea that, yes, Gentile Christians had to be circumcised. In other words, before they could be really considered a Christian. The, let, me, let me break it down in a math formula, since some of you are very mathematical. I want to speak to you today, okay? Here's, here's the math. Jesus plus circumcision equals Christian. That was the message in the Old Testament, or, or that, that, the new, that people were bringing into a, a post-Jesus era of the church as Gentiles were coming to know Christ. That the message was, yes, Jesus is great, but you have to have Jesus and something else in order to experience all the fullness that God has for you. Okay? That was the message. Now, Paul's message is an emphatic no, that is not the case, right? Now, some of you are like, some of you are like not really feeling it yet this morning. So, so this is just a little bit of, I'm, I'm laying the groundwork, okay? So you got to hang with me. Some of you are already glazing over. So do something to be awake, update your Facebook profile, do something, <laughs> then come on back, okay? Then come on back, all right? So that's, because I know you guys are on Facebook right now because I go home from church and I look at the timeline and I'm like, no kidding. They're sitting there doing that during the sermon. Okay? So let's just all bring it out in the open. I know you're doing it. Just do it and then come on back. Okay? Now I've got you with me. All right. Paul's answer to this equation, is it in fact the case that you must have Jesus and circumcision to be a Christian? Paul's answer is no. You don't need a physical circumcision because you've received the kind of circumcision that really matters. And that is the circumcision of the heart. Romans chapter 4. Circumcision is of no value unless it is accompanied by an obedient spirit. What is the circumcision of the heart? The, the ability to have all of, all of our allegiance belong to God and have that live out in obedience. So, 
so Paul is saying you're, you're literally or physically circumcised. It doesn't matter. What matter. That's of no value unless you're also demonstrating the circumcision of the heart, an obedient spirit to Jesus. Then in Colossians 2, what he says here is circumcision. He talks about a circumcision of Christ, speaking about Christ cutting out the sinful nature, removing it as the, as the primary seat in your heart, removing it as the king of your heart, being replaced by Jesus himself. That's what Paul is talking about. In other words, he says this. Paul's message is this. The new covenant in Christ's blood has provided forgiveness for both the Jew and the Gentile and therefore has rendered circumcision unnecessary. That's Paul's message. Our task today is to try to bring that into a modern context because I don't think that very many of you were tempted this week and and told the message that you have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. Right? Anybody find that as a big temptation this week? Nobody? Raise a hand. Nobody? Okay. I didn't think so. Right? So what we have to do is we have to take this into a more modern context and say, what, how, how can this text function in the same way as it functioned for them? Because I, I believe that while we're not tempted to, to have this, this um, math problem, Jesus plus circumcision equals being a Christian... I do believe that in our context, in our modern world, there are things that we believe you must have in addition to Jesus to have all that you need. There are things that we believe that you must have in addition to Jesus in order to have all the fullness of God expressed in our life. And this is what Paul is writing against when he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. See to it that no one is trying to say Jesus and something else. Now we could say that, yes, we need, we need Jesus and obedience. We need Jesus and all of these things. But if we have Jesus, obedience and morality and all of these things are an overflow of our relationship with Christ. Okay? Here's what I think is, is true in our, in our modern context. Our, our math problem is not Jesus plus circumcision equals Christian. Our math problem is this. Jesus plus cool equals all that I need. Jesus plus cool equals all that I need. That's what I see happening in the church today. In, in other words, if, if I have... All that this world has to offer, and I have Jesus, then people are like, he's really got it. I mean, think about it. If, if we have wealth, if we have, if we have significance, if we have influence, if we have nice clothes and the right haircut, and we love Jesus, how do we talk about those people? First of all, we paint all the, these great things that they have. They have all these things. And then we, also, then we say, and they're a Christian. <laughs> like it's like points for the kingdom of God that a cool person also loves Jesus. Right? And then if somebody is, you know, if they're like ugly, 
and they're unemployed, we say, at least they love Jesus. <laughs> now you're laughing because this is the world in which we live. Think, think about, think about the, 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 an influential Christian leader that you look up to. I don't know who it is. Do they represent cool? They do. I mean, they're like, I mean, they probably pastor a big old church, which means they have plenty of money, and they have like a different color hair every week, you know? And you're like, oh, man, this week it's like blonde on the tips. Sweet. You know, and they're like, oh, man, that dude, I swear I've never seen him wear the same shirt twice. That guy is so cool, you know? So, so how, whatever the picture is, you know, they have all the right clothes, they have a big church, they have the right haircut, Stephen Furtick, okay? Some of you know who that is, others of you don't. But some of you, some of you like, just, I mean, you want to keep that, that coolness so far at arm's length that you actually, your picture of cool is actually the exact opposite. They don't have like buckle clothes and the right haircut and a big church. They have like this really simple life. And they wear clothes from Goodwill. And anytime they write a book, they give all the, 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 the money away. And, and then you, you, you're like, man, that's cool. Shane Claiborne. Okay? But the, 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 however you define cool, chances are we're attaching that label to them and saying, and they love Jesus. And if someone isn't cool, we literally think in our heart and our mind, at least they have Jesus. As though Jesus was some sort of some sort of like accessory to the cool life and some sort of consolation prize to those who haven't achieved all that the world has to offer. Jesus plus cool in our culture, equals all that we need. And, and this, is, this is truly how it is. We see a person with good looking, nice car, hot wife, a boy, a girl, a white fence, and they love Jesus. In other words, in both of these mindsets, Jesus moves to the back seat. And if all we have to offer, if we have all that the world has to offer and Jesus, then we've got all we need. If we have nothing that the world has to offer and Jesus, at least we have him. And so often we make, we make these things that we, that we think portray cool, we make them our chief pursuit. Because if we could attain those things and have Jesus, then we'll really have all we need. But the problem is, is regardless of how cool or uncool you actually are or you are in reality, we're always chasing that thing, trying to make ourselves more cool, believing that if I have cool and Jesus, I'll have all we need. But what we do, what none of us tend to see ourselves as cool. There's always someone cooler than us. 
There's always someone that's living more in sort of righteous and holy poverty. There's someone that always have more, has more cool abundance than we do. We never see ourselves as cool. And so we sort of say, at least I have Jesus. And, and we sort of diminish the cross of Christ because we don't have the cross and something else. And what Paul's message to those who were saying, do I need circumcision and Jesus, Paul's emphatic message was, this thing over here is of absolutely no value if you don't have the thing that truly matters, the circumcision of the heart. And his message to us would be exactly the same. You can have all of this or not have it. What matters is do you have Jesus? And if you have him, you have enough. But we have such a hard time grasping onto that, and we strive and we strive and we strive after all that cool has to offer us. And today I want to talk about two elements of cool, wealth and significance. And here's the foundational truth. What we often work so hard to achieve, we already possess in Christ. Whatever it is, whatever level of cool you're trying to reach, whatever that means, whether it's wealth, significance, influence, all of those things you already possess in Christ. So we strive for wealth. What is it about wealth that, that, is so, that so draws us in that it would become one of the primary pursuits of our life? Well, wealth gives us A sense of security. And you'll notice that wealth and significance often go together. That if I have wealth, I have perceived significance. If I have significance, chances are I also have wealth. These two often go hand in hand. And we we pursue them, pursue them, pursue them. Wealth gives us a sense of security. It helps us to impress people. If you have not seen the movie The Joneses, you need to watch it today. Yes, it's rated R. Yes, it has a flash of nudity. But the message will knock you over the head. Watch the Joneses because it's all about this idea of you have that. Oh, I don't have that. How can I get it? We pursue wealth. It helps us to impress people. It helps us to get what we've always wanted. It helps us to satisfy every desire. It helps us to gain power and influence. Have you ever heard the saying, there's nothing that money can't buy? And oftentimes we strive after wealth in search of something that actually wealth cannot buy. But we believe the message that wealth can buy everything. And that wealth can buy anything. And so we chase after it. We make it our chief pursuit. And we say, if I were to actually gain wealth and have Jesus, then I would really have everything. Then I would have it all together. Sometimes we Christianize our, pers- our, 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 like, our like frantic pursuit of wealth, and we say, you know, if I had wealth, I'd be more generous. Let me tell you, generosity has nothing to do with your income and everything to do with your heart. If you're not generous now and you're broke with a capital B, you're going to be less generous when you have all the money in the world. You think, you think wealth brings generosity? No way. Because if your heart keeps a tight grip on everything, the more that you have, the tighter the grip will become. 
But sometimes we Christianize it. Man, if I, just, if I had more, I'd be more generous. So we pursue wealth. But again, let me remind us of the foundational truth. That which we often work so hard to achieve is already ours in Christ. Did you know this morning that you possess incredible wealth in Christ? That we are rich because of him. That Christ, possessing all wealth, gave up his treasure in order to make you his treasure. For you are a treasured people. That Christ possessed all the wealth in the world, and yet he gave all of that up so that he might attain you. So that he might possess you. So that he might be in relationship with you. For you are his treasure. Do you think that any kind of wealth that this culture and the world has to offer is even compared to the wealth that the God of the universe put on flesh, died on a cross, that he might be in relationship with you? You already possess incredible wealth in Christ. What the gospel does is it reorients wealth so that it is measured in a currency different than money. What the gospel does is it reorients wealth and measures it in a currency that's different than money. Look at the Beatitudes in in Matthew chapter 5. And one of your next steps this morning is to to study this further. But, But Jesus goes through all of these things and he says... For those who mourn, you'll be comforted. For those who are meek, they'll inherit the earth. For people who hunger and seek after righteousness, they will be satisfied. The merciful will receive mercy. The pure in heart will see God. The peacemakers will be called God's children and the persecuted. And and, and the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are persecuted. What Jesus does here is he illustrates a way of life that gives us infinite wealth. That, that as we live, uh, as we live as merciful people, as we live with mercy, we will be the ones who will receive mercy as we mourn. And trust me, there are times in life to mourn, right? And as we mourn and as we grieve, God's promise to us is that we will be comforted, that we will be given peace, that if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be satisfied. If you hunger and thirst for a Bentley, and get it, you will not be satisfied. If you hunger and thirst for cool, and you finally achieve it according to the world's standards, you still will not be satisfied. If you hunger and thirst for the greatest wealth that you could ever known, it will be gone and lost in an instant. But if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be satisfied. You want to talk about a wealthy way of life. You want to talk about a rich way of living. That if we begin to embody what Jesus talks about in the Beatitudes, if we begin to embrace the lifestyle of the kingdom of God, the gifts that come back to us give us a wealth and a a level and a measure of riches that simply could not be measured according to how this world measures wealth. It's a beautiful picture 
of the kingdom of God. In other words, what, what Christ is saying and what, what, I, what I believe is, is happening here is, is that we don't have to be rich with money because in Christ we are made wealthy in the ways that actually matter. We don't have to be rich with money for in Christ we are given a, the, the only kind of wealth that actually matters. Now, is it bad to be rich? Am I mad at you if you're rich? Absolutely not. God will entrust to some more than he entrusts to others. But if we realize that all of it is a gift from God to be used for his glory, to be used for his kingdom, then that's okay. But if our riches become our primary pursuit and they hold our heart and we we live life with a closed fist, then there's an issue. So it's not wrong to be rich. I don't think that poverty is next to, to, to godliness. I don't think that you have to be poor in order to be righteous. It's a matter of the heart. But don't you go pursuing wealth, believing that it will give you something that you don't already possess in Christ. We also search for significance, right? I mean, we want our lives to be counted for something. We want our lives to matter. On our, on our gravestone is the date that our life began, the date that our life ended, and this dash in between. And we want the dash to really represent something. We want the dash to say my life mattered, my life counted, that all the stuff that happened between the day that I was born and the day that I died counted for something. And what has happened is, is that we have come up with metrics by which to measure our influence and our significance. And within a social media culture, those metrics have literally become, you're going to laugh at this. And I think in 10 years, we'll really laugh at it. But our, the, the measure and the metric by which we measure influence and significance is how many people like my page on Facebook or how many Facebook friends do I have or how many people are following what I have to say on Twitter because I can really change the world in 140 characters or less. Right? Those are the metrics by which we measure influence. I don't think social media is going away anytime soon. But in 10 years, we will look at how, how much weight we place on those things and we'll laugh as a culture. Because in 10 years, we'll realize that those really aren't measures of, of significance or influence at all. They're tools, just like anything, they can be used for the kingdom of God, but they're not metrics of how much influence or significance I have. And so we search for significance because we want the dash on our tombstone to matter. We want to say that our lives did something, that it was for something. But again, what we strive so hard to achieve, we already possess in Christ. Did you know this morning that you're not only wealthy in Christ, but you possess an incredible significance in Christ? Do you have any idea today how much he loves you? Do you have any idea how much you matter and you count to God? I don't care what the metrics of the culture have to say about you. And oftentimes those metrics are related to how cool you are or perceived to be. But the good, thing, the good news is that God doesn't use the same ruler as the world when determining what matters and what's significant. 
Paul says some beautiful words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He spends the entire chapter talking about the reality of the resurrection of Christ, the importance of the resurrection of Christ. He says, our faith is in vain if Christ is not risen, but indeed he is, Paul declares in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then he goes on to talk about how you and I will one day be resurrected as a sign and as a symbol and as living into God's new creation that's breaking and bursting forth right here and right now. Paul paints this beautiful picture of the resurrection of Christ, of our bodily resurrection in God's new creation. And then he makes this really bold statement at the very end of the chapter, the last verse of the chapter. He closes this whole thought of new creation, resurrection with this. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you and always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I believe that the the implicit promise here is that all of the good works that you do for God in the kingdom of God will be gathered up and expressed in God's new world. That nothing you've ever done good for the kingdom of God will be wasted. It's not in vain. In other words, whatever role that you play matters, and it counts. It's so easy for us to fall into the trap of, I'm just a whatever. Like some of you might, might think about this in terms of, of this church. You might say, you know, God is doing great things, and, and the leadership is, is going well, and it's, and it's rocking and all of this stuff, but I'm just a volunteer. If I ever hear you say those words, I will slap you in the face. And then I will take that teachable moment and love on you. Because you're not just a volunteer. You're a link in the chain of lives that are being changed through this ministry. Oh, all I do is is help out in the kitchen. All I do is greet people as they come in, hand them a worship folder, a smile and a firm handshake. Oh, all I do is enter numbers on a spreadsheet. Oh, all I do, it doesn't matter what you do, it matters. You are not just a volunteer because every good work for the Lord is not in vain. It's gathered up and expressed in God's new world. So don't you dare say to me that you're just a volunteer or I will put you to greater work so that you feel like you matter. (laughs) That's probably a better approach than slapping you. I'm, I'm working through it as I'm up here, see? You might just say, well, I'm just a construction worker, or I'm just a student, or I'm just a nobody at my work. I go to work every day. I don't even know the boss. He doesn't even know me. I'm a nobody. Listen, whatever it is that you're doing for the kingdom of God, it matters. That wherever you find yourself, there are opportunities to to love on people. That wherever you find yourself, whether in school or in work or in life or in your neighborhood, there are opportunities to point people to the reality of a loving God, a merciful God, the reality of the kingdom of God. And anything that we do to point people to him matters. And it is significant. Your life 
is significant in the kingdom of God. Yeah, but I'm just a... I, I don't care what that I'm just a is. It matters. And what that is for us is it's, it's a call to action to say, I may not be here the rest of my life. I may not be working retail the rest of my life. But while I'm here, my role in the kingdom of God counts. It matters. I'm significant. And no good work will be, no labor for the Lord will be in vain. And so we, we, we search so hard for significance But if we would realize that in Christ we are already significant. Your your level of significance is not tied to the size of your sphere of influence. Sometimes we feel like that we're more significant if if our sphere of influence is is larger, right? And when I talk about like circle of influence, I'm really talking like the way that's expressed in our current world is how many blog readers do I have? How many Twitter followers do I have? Like this is how we build in this modern culture, how we build our circles of influence. And and what what I believe God wants to tell some of you is that doesn't matter. What you're doing already matters. It's already significant in the kingdom of God. And if you can build that influence, again, we're not, we're not throwing this away and saying, oh, influence is bad. Influence is great if you can use it for the kingdom of God. But don't you dare think that your significance is tied to the size of your circle of influence. Because it already matters. That you, you already matter and you count. So regardless of where you find yourself, or regardless of what you're doing, it is significant in the kingdom of God. The good news that I want to share with you this morning is this. The striving is over. Isn't that good news? I mean, how much time, energy, money, all these kinds of things do we spend striving towards what is already ours in Christ? So what the message I want to share with you this morning is the striving is over. Let me boil it down to you this way. If you possess all the world has to offer or nothing the world has to offer, but you possess Christ, you possess everything. If you possess all, the, all that this world has to offer or nothing that it has to offer and you possess Christ, you possess everything. I hope you haven't heard me. I hope you haven't misunderstood me today. I'm not, again, I'm not saying these things are bad, that we should just totally cast them aside. And I don't think Paul was saying that about circumcision. He was just saying, this is of no value. Your wealth and your influence and your cool factor is of no value unless you also have an obedient spirit. Circumcision circumcision is of no value if you don't already possess the only circumcision that really matters, the circumcision of the heart. And so we don't need to strive for these things. God may entrust these things to us, but the striving is over as we live in Christ. Now, Paul says this 
He, he brings it back to, to baptism, which I love. He says, you've already received the very thing that you were told that you must have. You were told that, you, that Jesus plus circumcision equals a Christian, but the reality is you've already received the only kind of circumcision that matters. You've been told, you, already, you have already received the very thing that you were told that you must have. You've received it. And now you've illustrated it through baptism. Where you were buried, you died to your sinful self, and then you were raised to new life. You know, I believe that God may be speaking to some of you today about baptism. That, that as you experience this newness in Christ, as you experience this reality of being in Christ, that, that God is, is pushing you to the next step where you would illustrate that through baptism. Where we bring people under the water to demonstrate that you've died to your old sinful self and then we bring you up out of the water, that's the good news. Right? The good news of the gospel is we ha- we're not held under. We're raised up to new life. So we dunk you and then we raise you up to new life in Christ. There's nothing magic about the water. It's an illustration of, a, of an inward reality of what has happened. And so I believe that for some of you today, your next step, your next spiritual step that I want you to take is to begin inquiring about baptism. And I'd love to meet with you and tell you more about it and see if it's right for you. Because that's ultimately where Paul lands. He says, the the very thing that you've been told that you must strive for, you already possess in Christ. And in fact, you've already illustrated it through baptism. You know, circumcision in, in the old covenant was a mark of belonging to the covenant and the people of God. In the new covenant, baptism is that mark. It's a, baptism itself is the mark of belonging to God, being living in his covenant, and being raised to new life. And for some of you, God is calling you to do that. The cross, well, well Paul ends, and I'm going to end here. Having disarmed the powers and the authorities... He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And I've written in my Bible in the margins, the cross calls out the lies. You want to see what's a lie and what's a truth? Look at the cross. In other words, the cross, expo- the cross of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the grace that is offered to us, the riches that we have in Christ through his cross, expose all of these other strivings and all of these other searches as false ends, as things that ultimately lead to nowhere. That doesn't mean that they're bad. That simply means that they don't give us what we believe that they will in the end. They were never intended to. They were always intended to be tools to be used for God's glory.